This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. <laughs> Nothing like having our subject introduce itself. <laughs> Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. This is one of those days when it seems as if the world is determined to throw at you every piece of beauty that it's got. I'm on the outer coast of southeast Alaska. As I look to my west, the distant ocean meets the sky. So we've got a little bit of surge running in off the North Pacific. And I've got my skiff tied up to some rocks and looking out at all the surrounding scenery. Islands of every size from bare pinnacle rocks to great long forested islands and high mountains. Well, speaking of the world giving you every treat it's got, when I tied up the skiff here, I just wanted to watch the plentiful sea otters that are around. There's a mob of about 50 of them all rafted up to the south. And scattered sea otters, including moms with their little pups, swimming back and forth here. Well, I was enjoying all this and having my peanut butter sandwich the most amazing lunch guest in the world showed up, and that's what we're going to talk about right now. This sound, that is a gray whale. It came in not 10 minutes after I stopped here, and it's been circling and rising and blowing and diving and obviously feeding here. And as you can tell by the sound, it's very close, sometimes rising within 30 or 40 feet of the skiff. It's enough to make your heart jump once in a while, but this animal obviously has no interest in bumping into the skiff a few minutes ago. It was coming straight toward me and I was hanging on for a second. And I sort of thumped on the side of the boat and the whale just turned away. I'm in such shallow water here that oh. incredibly close arches its back and turns vertical and the flukes now up in the air those great broad tail flukes gleaming and down it goes it's gonna be down there for a few minutes but I'll bet we'll see it again gray whales are unique and absolutely fascinating animals for several reasons for one thing they have an unusual way of living and we're gonna talk about that they also have an extremely long migration every year. They're kind of famous for that. And an interesting thing about their history, they were once nearly wiped out by commercial whalers and then they have made an amazing recovery. And today also, one of the most fascinating things about gray whales is their very special relationship with humankind. Along the coast of North America today, gray whales are pursued not by whalers, but of course by whale watchers, whose goal is just to see one of these amazing animals, or best of all, to touch a gray whale. Now the first thing I noticed 
when this gray whale showed up here is its size. It is a massive animal. I think if it could sit still, you could put up a tennis court on the back of this animal. They are one of the ocean's true leviathans. Most adult gray whales reach a length of about 35 to 45 feet, but the biggest ones, the females, can be up to 50 feet long. Now, for perspective, that's just a bit longer than a greyhound bus. And the gray whale weighs almost twice as much as a bus. The big ones, about 40 tons. The body of the gray whale is long and slender, and it has a narrow, streamlined head. It's not a big, bulky, thick-bodied animal like, say, the humpback whale or the bowhead whale. It moves very gracefully through the water, propelled by those broad flukes that we saw up in the air a minute ago, 10 to 12 feet across on a big gray whale. They have small paddle-shaped front flippers, has no dorsal fin. Oh. It just broke the surface. And as it rolls down, we can see a row of bumps or knobs along the back toward the after part of the whale. And the blow, you can see very clearly a misty, heart-shaped cloud up to 15 feet high. Now the blowhole of the gray whale, which I can see very clearly now as it blows again, it's two slit-like openings on top of the whale's head and you can see them. Right now the whale is moving away from us here for a second and I could see those two slits open up broadly as the whale blew out, sucked in another breath very quickly and then down it went. The gray whale, it's named for its color, which we can see very clearly as our whale arches and rolls. A dark gray background, but modeled everywhere with lighter spots and blotches. And some of those blotches perfectly round, very interesting, very white colored blotches, some of them. There's also, toward the head of our gray whale, conspicuous white patches, irregular shaped, especially on the head those are thick clusters of barnacles, a species that lives only on the gray whale. Now, another thing that I've noticed on the head of our gray whale are some orangey blotches, large ones. These are densely bunched animals called whale lice. They're actually kind of amphipod. They look like little multi-legged crabs. They cling onto the whale. Oftentimes, they're mixed in with those barnacles, I guess, because they can get a better grasp there. And what these animals do is feed on bits of the whale's skin, especially around cuts and scars, wherever there's loose stuff. Now, our gray whale, we're waiting for it to come back up again. It's down there somewhere underneath us. It's interesting to imagine. These animals live all along the Pacific coast of North America, from Baja, California, up to far northern Alaska and Siberia. Unlike other whales, and we're seeing it right here, the gray whales mostly stay in shallow water. Our gray whale, I'm tied up, as I mentioned, to the rocks here, and our gray whale isn't more than, at the most, 20 or 30 yards off these rocks. Now, most of us have heard of gray whales because of their migration. They're famous for making one of the longest migrations of any mammal on Earth. A round trip of 10,000 to 14,000 miles every year. These are traveling whales. On this side of the Pacific, gray whales spend their summer months 
feeding in the waters of the Arctic. And then by October, they'll start heading south. They'll come down through the Bering Sea. They follow along the coast here in Alaska, down along British Columbia, then Washington, Oregon, California, and finally to Mexico. And they spend the midwinter months in huge, shallow, blue water lagoons on the west coast of Baja California, Mexico. That's where most of the gray whale calves are born. Oh, there it is again, breaking the surface. Now another thing that happens during the gray whale's migration is their mating season as they move south and then it continues when they reach those lagoons in Baja California. There are about twice as many bull gray whales as there are cows, so there's lots of competition between romantic males, mainly pushing and shoving each other around. Often there will be two bulls staying very close to a female as they move along. And when she's ready, she rolls upside down and the lucky male joins with her. Now the other guys are not completely out of the picture because both male and female gray whales will mate with several partners. As ours now lifts its tail, water trailing off the edge of those flukes and down it goes beneath the deep blue waters of this breezy ocean we've got here today. A newborn gray whale, well, it may be tiny next to its mom, is actually a pretty darn substantial animal, up to 2,000 pounds, 12 to 15 feet long, roughly the length of my 1992 Toyota pickup truck. The flukes of that little whale after it's born still curled and flimsy. The mother gray whale lifts her child to the surface on her back for its first few breaths of air. The mother gray whale fiercely defends her calf. In fact, even researchers who have been hanging around with these animals for months have found that sometimes the mother whale will bump their skiff, almost capsize it. Just being defensive, don't mess around too close to my young one here. Now the whalers, back in the days of commercial whaling, learned how to take advantage of the mother gray whale's protectiveness. They would harpoon her calf first. Bit of a hard thing to think about. The mother would then come to save it and they would be able to kill her. But it was risky. The gray whale was notorious among the whalers. They often called it the devil fish or the hard head because the gray whale had a reputation for bashing harpoon boats to protect her calf. Into the water would go the men. Well, after two to three months down there in the Baja California lagoons, the whales turn around and start heading north again. They don't all leave together. They're widely scattered as they move out and head north. Oh, here we go again. And it's slow as it rolls up and down again. And that's the way the gray whales migrate too. Slow but steady travelers they are. There it is again, blowing that cloud of mist far up into the air here. And then the mist carried off in the breeze, the white water sloshing around the bow of that whale rolls up gleaming in the sunshine, the mottled back of this animal so close here, heading straight toward the skiff right now actually, <laughs> coming toward us. Whoop. There it is again, up, it's turned, seems to absolutely know where the skiff is, doesn't want to bump into us, and down it goes like a great big reef rolling down underwater again.
As I mentioned, migrating gray whales tend to stay close to shore, so people can watch them. They go out on headlands and watch these animals passing majestically. Biologists speculate that gray whales might navigate by staying in shallow water so they can follow the sound of the surf, like the surf we've got washing against this rocky reef right beside us here now. Well, it's amazing to think of those little gray whale calves, only a few months old, swimming thousands of miles up to the Arctic. It's not just a long trip, but it's also a very dangerous one, mainly because of killer whales. They'll sometimes attack adults, but the main target of those killer whales is the gray whale calves. They might harass the mother and her calf for days, try to tire them out, try to separate the calf from the mother, and then if they're able to do that, they may kill the calf. Certain places are especially dangerous, notably the great, broad, very deep mouth of Monterey Bay on the coast of central California near San Francisco. And perhaps the greatest peril of all is where thousands of gray whales funnel through the very narrow passage of Unimac Pass in the Aleutian Islands. Killer whales have learned to anticipate this and to wait and to intercept gray whales as they come through spectacular clashes between enormous animals. Imagine five-ton killer whales and a 45-ton mother gray whale contending with each other with the survival of the calf at stake. Battles last many hours. It would be heart-rending to watch, but it reminds us of the most fundamental reality of life, that every animal sustains itself by eating other life. And that includes us, whether it's plant life or animal life. We can't love life itself without loving the process that keeps life going, and that is eating and being eaten. Well, speaking of food, while the gray whales are down there in Mexico, they have basically nothing at all to eat. They live on stored fat. During their migration, as they come north and as they move south, they don't do anything more than snacking on small amounts of krill, maybe minnowy fish here and there. It takes them two to three months to reach the Arctic, and they've lost about one-third of their body weight when they finally get back to their far northern feeding grounds. Reminds me to say that not all gray whales make that long trip. Small numbers of them stop short, and they spend their summer along the coast of California, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, and right here in southern Alaska. There's our whale again, bursting up through the surface. Big blow there. However, overwhelmingly, the population of gray whales goes much farther north to those remote Arctic waters of Alaska and Siberia. And up there, they'll spend up to 20 hours per day feeding. Remember, endless sunlight. I don't know if the light really matters to them. 90% of their diet is amphipods, those little inch-long critters that look like small shrimp. Sand fleas and beach hoppers are amphipods, if you know what they look like. Gray whales also eat other little animals, worms, clams, insect-like critters that live on the sea bottom and down in the sediments. In some feeding areas, this is absolutely amazing, researchers have found 12,000 to 20,000 amphipods in every square yard of seafloor. Hard to imagine. So gray whales have a single compelling reason for this long migration to the Arctic, the phenomenal abundance of food in those northern waters. 
Now our gray whale just lifted its flukes and down it went again. And I'm imagining that it's going almost vertically down to the bottom, not terribly deep right here, maybe 50 feet or so. And what is going on is probably the most remarkable and unusual thing about gray whales, and that's how these animals feed. Now, these are baleen whales. The gray whale has a row of about 150 tightly spaced, cream-colored, plastic-like slats hanging down from each side of its upper jaw, like a giant comb with broad, flat teeth. And every slat is frayed with a hair-like fringe along its inside edge, and that acts like a strainer to trap food. Other baleen whales, like the humpback whale, the bowhead whale, the blue whale, capture their food in the water, but the gray whale is mostly a bottom feeder. Now this is what our whale is doing down underneath us right now. Gets to the bottom, rolls on its side. Interestingly, it's usually the right side, then uses its head to plow a shallow trough into the sediment down below us. Opens its mouth to a narrow crack, uses its enormous tongue, which can weigh up to a ton or more, uses that tongue to suck up a pudding-like mix of water, sediment, and small prey. And then it forces the water and muck out through those baleen slats, but the food animals are caught in those baleen strainers and swallowed. There's our whale again. That bursting breath, shining in the sunlight. What a thing to see. Now this bottom feeding, like our whale is doing right now, is an extremely productive way to live. Biologists estimate that a gray whale eats about 2,600 pounds of tiny animals every day. What's that, a couple thousand Big Macs? These animals have an appetite. The big, broad back of our gray whale angling up straight toward us. Oh, now turning a little bit, going off at an angle from the stern of the boat here. There it is again, that big breath, and arching down it goes into the depths to do exactly what we've been talking about. Now, I mentioned that the main predator on gray whales today is the killer whale, but humans have also hunted gray whales, possibly for thousands of years. For example, the Aleut people here in Alaska and some native people in Siberia used harpoons smeared with poison from the root of the monkshood plant, aconite. And after they struck a whale with that poison harpoon, they just wait and hope that it would die somewhere near their community and then they could retrieve meat from the carcass. Gray whales were hunted in a very different way by Nushinault Indians on Vancouver Island and by Macaw Indians on the Washington coast. Those people pursued gray whales in large dugout canoes, struck them with a harpoon that would stick in the flesh of the whale, had a long whale sinew line attached to it, and an inflated sealskin float that would eventually drag along the water and exhaust the whale so that they could approach it and kill it. That traditional hunting surrounded by much ceremony and ritual, showing respect for the whale. Now, the Macaw Indians in Washington state did this kind of hunting until 1913. The commercial whalers that coursed along the North Pacific coast and up into the Arctic in an earlier century 
used rather similar methods. They would chase the whales in boats rowed by crews of men, and they would kill the whale with a harpoon, but it had an explosive head, so it was much deadlier than the ones used by Native American people. Hunting gray whales only became profitable when the commercial whalers discovered those huge blue water bays down along the Baja California coast where the whales mated and gave birth. That big concentration meant it was very, very effective for the whalers to go in there. Many thousands of gray whales were killed by the commercial whalers, principally for the valuable oil of the whales. It was burned in lamps. It was used as an industrial lubricant back in those days. By the 1880s, however, Commercial whaling for gray whales ended because there were so few animals left and because petroleum products like kerosene had mostly replaced whale oil. And then the population of the gray whales gradually rebuilt. Enough so that commercial whaling, this time from steamships, was revived in the early 1900s and over a thousand more gray whales were taken but then these animals were finally protected by international treaty in the year 1946. By that time, there were probably less than a couple thousand gray whales left. As a result, an extraordinary regrowth of the population of these animals. By the year 2000, it's estimated there were 26,000 gray whales, possibly as many as there were before commercial whaling began. Now, because of this population recovery, in 1994, the gray whale was removed from the U.S. endangered species list. Also, the International Whaling Commission allows limited hunting of gray whales strictly as a food source for indigenous people who have whaling traditions. Oh, right here. Very close. I don't know how you could ever get enough of watching an animal like this and hearing that enormous <laughs> breath. Now speaking of that limited hunting by indigenous people that has been allowed under the International Whaling Commission, Macaw Indians in the state of Washington had not hunted gray whales for about 70 years and then they decided to resume small-scale gray whale hunts in 1999 amid great international controversy and legal wrangling that still continues today. Perhaps that hunt is as much about cultural identity as it is about food for the Macaw people. Well, they've only successfully taken one whale. That was in 1999. They killed another one in the year 2007, but it sank and was lost. Now, there's a very different story about indigenous people and gray whales coming from Arctic Alaska. In October of 1988, three gray whales became trapped by freezing pack ice near the Inupiaq Eskimo community of Barrow. That's the northernmost town in Alaska, one of the northernmost anywhere in the world, actually. Now, Inupiaq people still do hunt bowhead whales, but not gray whales. When those whales were found, people came out from Barrow and cut big holes in the ice so those whales could breathe, kept those holes from freezing shut. And then a huge rescue effort began. Worldwide news coverage. One of those whales eventually died, but an icebreaker finally got through, opened a long lane through that expanding pack ice, and the other two followed that lane and apparently survived. Oh, look at here. 
Here is a mother sea otter, not very far away, about 25 yards off the stern of the boat. She's lifted herself way up in the water, holding her little baby in her arms in front of her, both of them looking at us, little white whiskery faces, wide eyes open toward us, up here in the gleaming water and the sunshine. Well, today there is probably some illegal hunting of gray whales around Japan and Korea. It's a grave threat to that extremely rare and isolated eastern population of these animals. Gray whales are also hunted off the Siberian coast by large Russian ships. Now this is done at least under the explanation that it's providing food for Chukchi and Yupik Eskimo people who live there on that coast. Well, I saw a little bit of this for myself actually a few years ago when I was on a cruise ship that went along the Siberian coast and we visited a Chukchi village and there on the beach was the freshly butchered carcass of a gray whale. Huge thing, red meat clinging to the bones and the villagers put on a feast including gray whale meat for those of us who were visiting. So I can vouch for the fact that gray whale meat is actually pretty good stuff. Well, here's our gray whale again, so close beside us. Well, there are much bigger concerns for the future of the gray whale, far beyond that of a few that are taken to feed indigenous people. One is a growing pressure by some countries to resume commercial whaling for gray whales. And the other one is the possibility that the food sources in the Arctic that gray whales depend on may be declining because of the warming climate. This could have a huge impact on these animals. But there are also reasons for hope. There's been a fundamental change in the relationship between gray whales and people over the past half century or so. As our gray whale again rolls up, arches and down it goes beneath these blue waters. Back in the 1870s, People liked to visit the whaling stations along the California coast where they could watch the boats out there chasing the whales, hauling them in to be rendered for oil. Today, what a different story it is. People go to the same places just to see these great animals passing by on their migration, to witness the same remarkable journey that ancestral gray whales began making literally millions of years ago. In a sense, there's still a kind of whaling industry, but it's fundamentally different. Worldwide, commercial whale watching happens in about 90 different countries, and it brings in about a billion dollars per year. Often that money is coming into relatively poor communities. Now I mentioned that these whales here, the gray whale that we're looking at right now, and its companions, four or five other ones, have been watched all summer long by wildlife watching tours. Measured purely by profit, there's incomparably more to gain by protecting gray whale than there is by hunting them. Not to mention what it does for our souls to keep company with these extraordinary animals. And our gray whale now, just off the side of our boat, rolling down, I can actually see it a sort of pale, ghostly silhouette of a gray whale under the, oh, breaks the water again. Because the water is so clear, I can see it as it glides along under and breaks the surface. 
as we watch this animal, it makes me realize that we not only have much more to learn about the gray whale, but we've also got much to learn from them, and especially from the story of our growing and deepening relationship with these immense, compelling, marvelously mysterious animals, the gray whales. And down it goes now again, arching its back. What an amazing thing it would be to see this animal now torpedoing down almost directly under our skiff here. Well, we can only be down there with our imaginations and maybe there's something beautiful about that too. For Encounters, I'm Richard Nelson. Wanna thank you so much for your good company and thanks especially to this gray whale for letting us share the water with it today. I'll see you next time. Encounters is a production of the Island Institute and KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. This program was written and narrated by Richard Nelson, edited and produced by Lisa Bush, special consulting from Ken Fate, theme music by Outback. Encounters is funded by the National Science Foundation and by the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, the North Pacific Research Board, and Robert Osborne, Jerry Tone, Martha Wyckoff, and Sue Cohen. For more information about the show and to hear podcasts, go to EncountersNorth.org.